please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Acts chapter 28. As we prepare to spend time in God's Word, let's ask Him, the author, ask God to prepare our hearts. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we recognize that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts, that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask your people to do. Father, be pleased to meet with your gathered people, and may your Holy Spirit be at work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are here at week 71 in Acts. Acts is just one of the 66 books in the Bible, of course. And it's always helpful to remember that we can look at the scriptures in many ways and and, and remember many things about it. But one of the most helpful I've found through the years is promises made and promises kept. And when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And so promises promises made and promises kept really can be seen as promises made about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And if you hadn't noticed yet, all four of our main hymns all start off with the name Jesus. And even the hymn that we will conclude with, uh, the gospel song, it's about the gospel that Jesus brings. It's about him. It's by him. It's for him. In the scriptures of the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the gospels, he's revealed. Here in Acts, he's being preached. In the letters to the churches, he's being explained. And in the, the final book of scripture, Revelation, Jesus is expected. His return is anticipated. Here in Acts, where Jesus is preached, uh, Acts is a selective record. It's part two of Luke's two-volume work. It's a selective record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Now, through the Holy Spirit, in the church, founded by him through the apostles. Remember, in chapter one of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, that you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And thus far in Acts, we've seen the witness of Jesus, the the proclamation of the gospel go out from ground zero in Jerusalem and to spread. And here today, we, as we come to the end of the book, we come to Rome, which for the residents of Jerusalem would be seen as the end of the earth, the capital of the Roman Empire. And what is going to happen in Rome? Jesus will be preached. After the uh, bulletin went to print and after the um, uh, preparing for worship email went out, uh, there's been a slight change in the title, um, Heart Disease. Heart disease. Um, And when I thought about that a little bit more, I I thought of death. And we all know that the mortality rate for everyone 
every country, every people, it's 100%, right? There may be a delay in death, there may be a denial of death, but no one can escape death. Now, as of 2019, the leading cause of death in the United States was heart disease. The second leading cause is cancer, followed by accidents. Now, that may change when the 2020 statistics become available, but what won't change is that the leading cause, and really the only cause of spiritual death, is heart disease. It's no wonder, then, that Scripture addresses very often, and in many ways, matters of the heart. And our text today provides a good example of the Word of God taking aim at and addressing the heart of man. Now, according to Scripture, the heart of man is not that physical organ uh, through which blood is circulated throughout the body. No, according to Scripture, the heart of man is the center and the core of life. It's the capital of someone's life. It's the hub of someone's life. It's the inner man, the inner woman. The heart is who you are. It's the real heart. You know, in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel's been tasked to, uh, to um, anoint the new king of Israel. And, and we read in chapter 16, for the Lord sees not in, as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That had to be in the background of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount addressing an outward display of righteousness versus the inward reality of righteousness. But when we think of the heart, Scripture pulls no punches. The prophet Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is diseased. It's sick. Who can understand it? Well, the Lord understands the heart. The Lord knows the heart of man. Again, man, you and I, we default to looking at the outward appearance. The Lord knows the heart. And the heart is so important. Is it not that, that we read in Proverbs that we are called to keep our hearts with all vigilance? For from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. And if you go through the Proverbs, so much is addressed to the heart. Dennis Johnson, a commentator in Acts, writes this, and you've heard it before. Of course, God gave us the book of Acts to do more than satisfy our historical curiosity. Like all scripture, its purpose is to inform and deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just going to give us more information, no, by the mysterious, powerful working of the Holy Spirit. It will deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. So let's spend a few moments now reading chapter 28, verses 11 through 28. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Putioli, 
There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against any nation, against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Well, what does God, through Luke, the historian and the theologian, want us to know? What are we to be informed about? And what does God want us, where does God want us to change, to be transformed? I believe we can see three areas in which we not only can be informed through his word, but also transformed by the powerful but invisible working of the Holy Spirit. And so our approach to the text will be to highlight three areas. The man, of course, the Apostle Paul. The message, that is the good news about Jesus. And third, the mixed response to the message. So, let's consider the man. But before we get to the man, uh, let's make a few comments about the journey from Malta to Rome. Remember, they had spent three months now in Malta, and the weather has uh, now become favorable to return to sailing in the Mediterranean, and they catch a ship, and it gets to Syracuse, and then another town at the boot of Italy, and then up to uh, Putioli. And in that description, there's a lot of interesting information, kind of unimportant information and details. Uh, it really shows us the accuracy of the scriptures. Why else would that be included other than Luke 
is a good historian. He's a good eyewitness. It's preserved for us because it actually took place. We read of a, uh, of a ship that they catch, another Alexandrian uh, grain ship, with uh, the figurehead uh, two twin gods, uh, the mythical sons of Zeus, uh, on board. And, and those two deities were the patron deities of sailors and the protector of seafarers. Now it's interesting, a little bit of irony there from, from Luke, because it's not the twin sons of Zeus they are going to get those on the ship safely to their destination. No, as we've seen in this storm at sea and the shipwreck, no, it's, it's God because Paul believes in, he belongs to, and he serves the one true and living God, and he is his protector. He is his deliverer. And once in Italy proper, we see that they spent seven days with brothers. You see, the gospel had already gone to Italy. It had already gone to Rome. Three years earlier, Paul had written a letter to the church in Rome uh, speaking of his desire to visit. So there are believers in Italy, and they're in this town, and there's fellowship and support for seven days. Most likely, Paul and the others have been exhausted from this journey. Paul has spent three months ministering on Malta and they now have a chance to rest in the company of brothers. And we read that brothers from Rome had heard that Paul was now in Italy. Most likely during that seven days some messenger got up to Rome and the church in Rome sent people to greet Paul. They met him on the road in two lake locations. And the language is such, and the, ro- the readers would understand that this greeting and this procession back to Rome is along the lines of a triumphal procession that would greet conquering military leaders back to Rome. And yet here, Paul, the imperial prisoner, is making a triumphal procession to the very seat of of the empire, the capital of the empire. Who is Paul? Well, we know a lot from Scripture, but I want to focus our attention on what we read in this text. He's a man who, upon arrival in Rome, or more correctly, on the road to Rome, he gives thanks. You see that in verse 15. And the brothers when there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us, On seeing them, Paul thanked God. How many times do we hear that expression, roll off our lips and roll off other people's lips? Oh, thank God. I mean, that might be an instance of taking the Lord's name in vain. Thank God. Paul, upon seeing brothers come out to greet him, thanks God. God. You see, thanksgiving and gratitude are signs of life. Paul is practicing what he even preached to the church in Rome through his letter. Remember in chapter 1 of Romans, he says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul gives thanks. Thanks to God because he is thankful. 
before we go on, um, when you see a brother or sister in Christ, do you thank God? Do you take it for granted? I hope there's something to think about quotes will, will help us see the preciousness of Christian fellowship, the preciousness of relationships with others who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. He gives thanks for God's provision for him of brothers in the faith. He also, what, takes courage. He takes courage. Now, one translation translates this as, as was encouraged, that, but most of the translations say, no, Paul takes courage. It's not so much a passive was encouraged, although he was, but it's rather an emphasis on the active. He took courage. Now, earlier we read in chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I mean, is Luke really saying that Paul obeys Jesus' commands? The command was to take courage, and so what does Paul do? He took courage. He gives thanks, he takes courage. And, and remember in Romans 1, in some of the earlier verses, this is what Paul says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Think with me about that. Here's the Apostle Paul saying to the nameless, at the time, faceless members of the church in Rome, that you and I together can mutually encourage one another. And you see it happening. You see it happening. Now, did y'all see what's going on here? Paul is not even to Rome, and the Roman church doesn't want to wait for him. They go toward him. Could it be the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the two sons, that the father doesn't wait for the son to return, he goes out? Well, that's not the case going on here, but it's certainly reflective of a kind and generous heart, a compassionate heart, a heart of fellowship. They don't wait for Paul to arrive, they go out and meet him. Paul thanks God, he takes courage. Oh, my friends, Is there too much encouragement in our lives? In our relationships with one another, do we encourage one another or do we discourage one another? I mean, in one sense, it's one or the other. Sadly, I, I'm sure more times than I care to remember, I have discouraged people instead of encouraged them. But here in our text, we see Paul is a man who gives thanks and he takes courage. The presence, the love, the care, the effort of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that come to meet him.
We see also that Paul finds it necessary to be a man who explains himself. I mean, wouldn't it, it isn't going to be great when we don't have to explain ourselves to people. We don't have to defend ourselves. There'll be such just trust between one another that we don't have to do that. And yet, what does Paul do? And we see this in verses 17 through 19. He, he has to explain himself. He, he goes, of course, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so in this meeting with some of the Jews in Rome, he wants to convey three things, excuse me, four things. He says this, basically, I'm innocent before the Jews. I'm a prisoner and there are reasons for my captivity. He wants them to know that both Romans and Jews had opposite dispositions toward him. And finally, he wants them to know that he is not guilty of any crime deserving death. Not only is he innocent before the Jews, but he's innocent before the Romans as well. And if you read closely those verses, you see Paul, though on the run for his life by the aggressive nature of the Jews, he still has a heart of love toward his own people. He doesn't counter-sue them. He wants, as we read in Romans 9, he wants them to know the promised Messiah. He's a man who knows the hope of Israel. We see that in verse 20. The reason I'm here, the reason I'm wearing this chain, chain to this Roman soldier, is because of the hope of Israel. He said that before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, before the governor Felix in chapter 24, and before the governor, the king Agrippa in 26. You see, who Paul is and what he's become is because he has met the hope of Israel. He's met the Messiah. And such hope relates to the resurrection of the dead, in particular to Jesus' resurrection, designating him as God's son. So after Paul explains himself, defends himself, the leaders of the Jews, we read, desire to hear what Paul's views are. And Paul is glad to be given this opportunity to respond to their request by proclaiming the message. The message. Uh, remember, Paul is a man on a mission. He has a ministry and he has a message. He has really one message. When he was converted, when he met Jesus, remember in chapter 9, he was going to be a chosen instrument of the Lord's to carry his name before the Gentiles. And we see the fulfillment of that taking place. It's taking place elsewhere. It's taking place here in Rome as well. And if you had to nail down one place where Paul speaks of him being a man on a mission with a ministry and a message, it's this, chapter 20, 24. Paul says this, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And what is that ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's his one message and he's going to explain that message to this new audience. So the message that Paul proclaims here in Rome is consistent. It's the same old song. Paul, in one sense, is a, has a one-trick pony. 
This is his message. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the fulfillment of the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. It's one message. It's adapted, though, in all of the different places he goes based on the context, based on who he's with. Here he's with leaders of the synagogues in Jerusalem. It's a consistent message, and it's a message that Paul didn't come up with it on his own. No, it's a message from the scriptures. We read of he's, he's preaching and teaching from the law of Moses and the prophets. Look with me at verse 23. There's a day appointed. He's in his lodging. He can't go to them. They come to him in, in, in more numbers. All day from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Paul is following Jesus because after his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, what does Jesus do? He uses the scriptures to talk about who he is. The law of Moses and the prophets, how they all point to him. And we read that verse, he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. So it's a consistent message from the scriptures about the kingdom of God and Jesus. Those of you with us in our study in Mark a few years ago, remember the opening line of Jesus' public ministry in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, there's a relationship between the kingdom of God, that is the fulfillment of God's saving promises to his people. There's a relationship between the kingdom of God and the gospel. The kingdom is here, Jesus says in Mark 1, because I, the king, am here. And here's the message. And you're to repent of your sin and believe the message. Now Paul has given us a good example here of, of faithful proclamation of the gospel. What I want us to see is a distinction between declaration and persuasion. Notice again, he's expounding the scriptures. He's testifying to the kingdom of God. But he's trying to convince them. You see, Paul is successfully declaring. He's successfully um, uh, promoting and proclaiming. But as we will see, his persuasion is not necessarily a success. Paul can control what he declares. He cannot control whether or not he is persuasive. Now, of course, Paul tries to be persuasive. He's doing everything he can to persuade from the scriptures, but he knows that he can declare, but he can't convert. Only the Lord can do that. And may that be an encouragement to us. I was with some people the other day. Um, we were talking and they said, there have been recent examples in their life where they were talking to somebody, somebody came up to them and, 
and was in a life crisis and asking for advice. And somehow the conversation ended and these men that I was talking with said, I regretted I didn't end up talking about Jesus. They, they regretted, was it fear? Was it self-consciousness? What was it? But something stopped them from speaking about Jesus as the hope of Israel, as the answer, as the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And it was good to talk about this with these men because we realized that we're called to declare, we're called to testify, we're called to point, but we can't change people. We can't convert people. It's not our job. So Paul here provides a good example in declaring and trying to persuade. Now, as always, the gospel proclaimed, that is the good news about the kingdom of God, the good news about Jesus, encounters a mixed response, belief and unbelief. We see here that his message is both received and rejected. Now, it's not surprising, is it? Remember in Luke chapter 2, Simeon, when taking the infant Jesus in his arms, he spoke to Mary saying that this, this man will be the cause of the rising and falling of many. He will divide people. We see that after Paul issued a warning, they disagreed and they departed. Now, the disagreement was fundamentally this, how to interpret the scriptures. Is Jesus the Messiah or not? Is he the fulfillment of what scripture says is coming? Or is he not? And, and we see in the text that, that, that the Jews couldn't come to a consensus on whether their forefathers' resistance to God's message was was paralleled by the present Jewish rejection of the promised Messiah and the Christian gospel. And that's why Paul goes in to quote Isaiah 6. It's a warning. God, through Isaiah the prophet, spoke to his generation. And then Jesus uses this text in his ministry. And now Paul... It's quoted by Jesus in the Gospels to explain the failure of the Jews as a whole to embrace him. We read in that account from Luke 8, we read it in Matthew and Mark, and even John talks about unbelief. We, we read that the people have eyes, but they're blind. They have ears, but they're deaf, and their hearts are dull, calloused, and hard. See, when Paul made that one statement, rightly referring to the fact that the Holy Spirit was speaking, that your forefathers, your ancestors are just, you're, you're just like them. Because Isaiah had a message and he went, but eyes were blind and ears were deaf and hearts were closed and cold to the message of the Lord. And it's the same thing so Luke's narrative account ends with Paul issuing an announcement. They, they depart after they hear this warning. And Paul makes it a statement, an announcement. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God 
has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Implying, of course, that you, my brothers, my fellow Jews, you're not listening. You're not listening. Well, there have been three points, as it were, the man, the message, and the mixed response. But I want us to end with two other points. First, Scripture points to and proclaims a man and his message. Scripture points to and proclaims a man and his message. You see, Scripture is focused on Jesus and the gospel. God's word points to who he is, what he came to do, and how we should respond to his person and his work. And Jesus, of course, points to himself as well and his message. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is how John, the apostle, says it in John 1, beginning in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And second and finally, Scripture points to and addresses the heart, the very center of who we are, the very core of our being. I want us to circle back around to the Old Testament text that was read earlier. In chapter 18 is the command, make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. That seems quite impossible, doesn't it? Why would God command us to do something that we cannot do? Is that how you feel when you hear to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength? Can any of us say, yes, I've done it? Ezekiel 18, make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit, spirit is along the lines of do this and live. Remember Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler? Hey, got a question, Rabbi. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, you've heard the law, you've heard the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, whatever. Oh, I've done all of these. Hmm. Then sell everything you have, give to the poor and follow me. Yeah, I've done all of these. 
Jesus knows the heart. The man didn't even know his own heart. But Ezekiel 18 is followed by Ezekiel 36, where the Lord says also, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put into you. My friends, there's the tension of the scriptures. And there's the turning point in the scriptures. You see, you recognize the tension and you turn and exclaim, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, my friends, the good news of the gospel is that God gives us what he demands of us. And only when we come to the end of ourselves, only when we throw up our hands and say, I am undone, I am unclean, I am lost, I am without hope. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we cry out for rescue, Jesus, who is strong and kind, is glad to save those who can't save themselves. My friends, we all were born with heart disease that leads to death. And we can do all sorts of temporary patches and fixes and we can spray paint our hearts and we can dress them up. But the bottom line is our diseased hearts will fail us. We've got to have a new heart. A new heart. And with that new heart come new ears to hear and new eyes to see to hear the call of the gospel, to see the strength and the beauty and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. My friends, Paul saw the Pharisee was a learned man. None of us, none of us could go toe-to-toe with him in theology. But when he encountered Jesus and discovered that Jesus was the hope of Israel. His life changed, and he had a message to proclaim. May God be pleased to give all of those who cry out to him for a new heart, a new heart. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that apart from the intervening work of your Son, your Spirit, we were without hope. We were without you. Oh, Father, thank you for providing for us what we could never obtain on our own. And Father, may that increasing recognition of how 
you have provided what you have demanded. Make us of all people the most humble. But may it also make us of all people the most confident and bold to proclaim the good news of the gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to the world that waits. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus.